Would you turn with me please to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? You'll find our text for today in verse 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Apostle Paul, in this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he draws a very striking comparison, I think, between the Old Testament feast of the Passover and the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Plainly, he declared in verse 7, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And as I read those verses in, in the days that have gone by, I was reminded uh, as we meet around uh, the Lord's table today that what was prefigured in uh, Exodus chapter 12, uh, here we have worked out at the Lord's table as we meet around this sacred feast. You'll remember how God visited Pharaoh and the Egyptians in judgment with the ten plagues. Never was a world superpower brought down by flies and frogs and lice. It never happened before, but God brought them down. But the final plague was to break the nation. God revealed in Exodus chapter 11 that he would visit Egypt for the last time. He would smite dead all the firstborn of the land, both of man and of beast. And such judgment was going to bring the great Egyptian superpower of its day into the dust. But God said he would set a difference. He would set a difference, as he always does, between the people of God and the world. So in Exodus chapter 12, he instructed Moses how to observe the Passover. And we read there about the lamb for the house and for the family. And the lamb was taken and all the, 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 the procedure that was gone over, whose blood needed to be shed, and not only shed, but gathered and preserved, and then sprinkled upon the doorposts of the home. And on that night when a death stalked the land of Egypt and right throughout the land, those homes that had the mark of the blood upon them would be saved from the judgment of God. God would pass over them because death had already visited there and judgment will not fall where death has already visited. And they had already fed on the Paschal Lamb. They were not only hiding under the blood of the Paschal Lamb, they had been nourished by the Paschal Lamb, and they were prepared for the exodus that came afterwards. They were saved from the visitation of judgment, and they were ready to go when God led them out. So as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're now in the full orbed light of the New Testament revelation of the sacrifice of Christ, and we read in verse 8, uh, that Paul, he went on to say to the Corinthian believers, therefore let us keep the feast, 
not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, admittedly, there are uh, biblical commentators, and they do not see a sole reference here to the feast of the Lord's Supper. And many see it as an all-inclusive reference as to how Christians live holy lives, as it were, uh, perpetually, by keeping this feast. But I don't think either interpretation is out of harmony with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I see in verse 8, because I connect it with the Passover, we accept that the Passover foreshadowed uh, the sacrifice of Christ that we remember at this table, at the very instigation, inauguration of the New Testament covenant, the Lord Jesus was keeping the Passover with his disciples. And so I think it is a a legitimate interpretation that what we remember here today is the feast, not of the ancient Jewish Passover, but is the feast of the Lord's Supper and how we ought to keep it. So how are we to keep this feast? In all of our catechisms, we're taught that we need to prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's Supper. We don't rush in and rush out. We prepare our hearts. And I pray that the Lord will give us clear answers from this passage today, how we ought to keep this table, how we ought to prepare our hearts. But not just for this day. That would be a pointless exercise if it was only one day out of seven. May every day we likewise strive to live holy lives and to walk as worthy participants who not only bear the name of Jehovah in their baptism, but who also sit at his table and feast with his people. So firstly, how do we keep this feast? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 teaches us that we first of all have to deal with sin in all of our lives. Paul had borrowed from the Old Testament a similitude of leaven. The leaven was used to make the bread rise. It was the yeast. If any of you make bread, you'll you'll know that you'll need yeast to make it rise. In Exodus chapter 12 verse 15, Exodus chapter 12 verse 19, Exodus chapter 13 verse 7, we, we learn there about the leaven. And the leaven was the remnant of dough that was left over from the preceding batch. So when the batch of dough was made, there was a little bit of it left over and it, a, well, literally it, it became putrefied. It fermented and it became acidic. In Exodus chapter 12, 34, we read that it was usually wheaten bread that was used to make wheaten flour that was used to make the bread. And this was mixed together in kneading trucks, wooden kneading trucks or bowls. And then into the bowl was added this little leaven and it made the bread right and then it was baked on the fire. But in contrast, because nothing of corruption could contaminate the Passover. In contrast, the bread which was eaten at the Passover feast, which lasted for seven days, was always unleavened bread. When Moses and the children of Israel entered into the promised land, we read in Deuteronomy 16 verse 3, the instructions were given, Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith. 
even the bread of affliction. For thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. I don't know how long it takes for yeast to influence the, the whole lump. But the children of Israel didn't have time for any of that that night. They had to eat the bread that had no leaven in it and therefore hadn't risen. It was the flat bread. The use of leaven was also strictly forbidden in all of the offerings that were made by fire unto the Lord. Now, the Lord Jesus, he used the leaven positively to illustrate the growth of the kingdom of God, both in the world and in the hearts of individuals. Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. But negatively, here we find the, the usage of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It teaches us about the wickedness of the human heart. The corruption of sin that is in the human heart. Jesus spoke about the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. What did we mean when he spoke about the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, in Matthew 16, verse 5 onwards, just let me read you the passage. We read, when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have taken no bread? Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves? Do ye not understand? Neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets ye took up. Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many baskets ye took up. How is it that ye do not understand that I speak unto you not concerning bread. But that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he wasn't talking about literal bread. He was talking figuratively and he explained it fully in verse 12. He said, then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but what? But of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the scribes. Here was a dangerous uh, leaven, just a little leaven of bad doctrine can wreak havoc in lives for time and for God's eternity. It has a secret penetrating diffusive power and that's what Paul is referring to here in verse 6 a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump you just have to put a little bit of yeast into that whole lump so that that flat uh, dough suddenly rises and becomes into uh, the cake of bread and it is like with bad doctrine and bad practice it can soon leaven it can soon influence a whole congregation you think that doesn't happen? been reading a little bit in the past week about new Calvinism. It sounds good, doesn't it? If somebody comes to you and says they're a new Calvinist, your heart really warms them because of the word Calvinist. And we do love the doctrines of grace that go along with the terminology Calvin, Calvinism. But what's new Calvinism? New Calvinism is taking the, the methods of the world and trying to mix it with the doctrines of grace. 
taking the music of the world, taking the ideology of the world, the entertainment uh, idea of the world and, and trying to make it into the worship of God. I was so intrigued by all of this that I did go onto YouTube and look up some of the churches. And it was just amazing that churches could say they're Calvinist and do the things that they do. You cannot take the leaven of worldly music, of worldly culture, and that trying to, as it were, create that worldly environment, that cinema-like environment, that club-like environment, and say this is the body of Christ, this is the worship of God. And as I thought about that, I thought that's the... Just like the leaven of the Pharisees. A little bad doctrine can corrupt a whole generation. And that's why we have what is known as the emergent church. All of these new churches springing up across the land. And they have imbibed this spirit. They say, oh, we, 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 we're keeping to the old ways. We're keeping to the old truth, but we're just doing it in new ways. Bad doctrine can soon leaven a whole congregation. Bad practice, likewise, can soon leaven a whole congregation. Immorality. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is talking about. In the opening verses, uh, Paul refers to sexual sin. Sexual sin of such enormity amongst the believers at Corinth. He said that the very Gentile, ungodly world nearly blushed at what was happening within the professing body of Christ at Corinth. An incestuous relationship was tolerated amongst the professing body. And no disciplinary action had been taken. And so the apostle, <clears throat> in order to save the spirit of that guilty person, gave over the body, the flesh, to the destruction of Satan. Paul well knew the corrupting power of sexual sin within the professing body of Christ. He reminded the believers at the Lord's table at Corinth. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Now you have to put that in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What was happening? <coughs> there was sexual sin, there was lust, there was immorality. And it had not been judged or dealt with. And he said, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. What was happening? The church refused to chasten those offenders. And so God just stepped in. And we read here these, uh, these amazing verses that there were some weak, weak, there were some sick, and there were some that had died. Because sin had not been dealt with by the church. Paul counseled therefore. The Christians to purge out this leaven. Of sin from their lives. <clears throat> they were to live. According to apostolic doctrine. And practice. They were to live to. The, the, the doctrine of the Bible. And to the practice of the Bible. 
What a solemn, a solemn passage. In verse 8 he talks that we're not to keep the feast with the leaven of malice and wickedness. This word malice, it just means unkindness. It means evil. And that unkindness, that evil spirit that diffuses itself very quickly, even amongst a professing body of believers. He said to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice. You nearly think that those attributes should not be named amongst the people of God, but there they are. Here's a congregation, he's talking to them, and he said, it's named amongst you. There is angry people in your midst. There are people and they're full of wrath in your midst. And there are people and they're full of malice in your midst. But not only that, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Purge it out. Purge it out. There are many Christians and They love humour, as they call it, with a little near the knuckle. No, it's not that, brethren and sisters. It's just body. It's filthy communication. It needs to be purged out. Not just malice, but wickedness. It is just a direct reference to the depravity of the human heart and all the sins that emanate from the human heart. And he uses these two terms... And he covers secret sins and known sins, malice, he said, and a wickedness. Purge it out. When the Jews of old kept the, the Passover, they had to search the house. Every bit of leaven had to be taken out of the house. And as you and I come to the Lord's table, uh, the Spirit of God says to us, purge out the sin that's in your life. I'm glad you don't have to examine my house and my heart. You have to examine your own heart. And your own house. And you have to look for the leaven of sin. And you have to put all known sin away. In the larger catechism, again, question 171, it says, How are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come to it? And it tells us, and part of the question, by examining themselves of their being in Christ, of their sins and wants. If you're not in Christ, if you're not saved, and a child of God, whilst personally I think you can still stay for the Lord's Supper and observe what is being taking place at the Lord's Supper, but you're not to partake of it. You are not to partake of it. You're to judge your own heart. And dear Christian, you and I, we're to judge our hearts too. This is a direct reference to the Christian of their sins and wants. Oh, how many wants we have, how far short we fall of what God requires. Should that discourage you from coming? That should make you come all the more. Because my heart is full of sin. And I need to come to Christ, the one alone who can deal with sin. And I need to be reminded that there's one who made an end of all my sin. 
through his own sacrifice on Calvary's cross. Here's a challenge to all of our hearts and lives today. How do we keep the feast? Will we purge out the old leaven that we may be a new lump? But secondly, we focus our attention on the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb. What are we here to do? We're not here to look at each other. We're not here to judge each other. We're here to put our eyes upon the Paschal Lamb. It tells us here that Christ, our Passover, and so there's a clear linkage with Exodus chapter 12. Christ, our Passover, all that was prefigured in the Old Testament now is outworked in the New Testament. He is our Passover. He is sacrificed or slain for us. The giving of that name to the ordinance reminds us of two things. It reminds us that it was a sign and an assurance that the destroying angel which slew the firstborn in every household of the Egyptians would pass over the Israelites if they observed this ordinance. I love verse 13 of Exodus 12. I will pass over you. When? When I see the blood. I will pass over you. What assurance that brings to our hearts today. The Lord says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And that's why we often should come to the Lord's table and sit here and be reminded as we partake of these blessed emblems of the crucified. He has died. His blood has been shed. And because he has died and his blood has been shed, he'll pass over us on the judgment day. What a blessing. We need to be kept in remembrance of it. The Israelites of old were to keep that feast yearly. It was, this, it was a weekly thing. For seven days they were to keep it. There are many in the church today. They just want the Lord's table to be a ten minute thing at the end of the service. They slip in, they slip out and that's it away. Dear brethren and sisters, that's not how we're to keep the Lord's table. We're to remind those who sit at the table were to remind the young ones who are part of our home what it means. We're to remind them. Let me read to you some verses again from Exodus chapter 12. It shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? The feast of the Passover. What, what do you mean by it? Daddy, what does it mean, the bread? What does it mean, uh, the cup? What does it mean when Christians partake of it? What do you mean by it? You can't tell them, brethren and sisters, if you don't bring them to the table and show them what's happening. Then you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. We, I think we have a bounden duty to teach our children the meaning of the sacraments of the church. The meaning behind the Lord's table. We shouldn't hide it from them. I have come to the conclusion over the years that it's not good that, that we take the children away. We send them home when it comes to the Lord's table. They should be there. It had been an unthinkable thing for the Jewish family to take the children when the lamb was being slain, when the blood was being applied, when the, the, the meal was being partaken off, that the children were put in another room and they didn't see what was going on. Teach the children. 
Teach the children. What are these points of distinction here that that we can make note of very quickly? Well, the Passover was an Old Testament sacrament. Of that I am sure. Yes, it was a sacrament to the Jew. And the outward element, because there has to be a sign and a seal, the outward element was the lamb. And the lamb of Exodus chapter 12 was eaten by all that was in the house. It was their participation of Christ. Now there's something great truth in that because Jesus said in John 6, 53, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye shall have no life in you. Now that does not mean we're to eat the corporal, physical flesh and blood of Christ, but we are to spiritually feed and spiritually to nourish our souls on the sacrifice of Calvary, on the Paschal Lamb. How? Because as we partake of these emblems of the blessed crucified Lamb of God, God nourishes our souls. That's why we call this table a means of grace. It's not just a remembrance feast, it's a means of grace. God actually gives us grace as we wait at this table. Oh, all of these Old Testament rites, they, they were the signs and seals temporarily, spiritually, and how they're all outworked in the New Testament. Because the, the feast that we sit at today is equally a, a, a feast of divine ordinance and institution. Jesus instituted it. We'll come to that just in a little moment. This feast has its signs. This feast has its seals. And it comes with those covenantal promises. The lamb is for the household. I take great encouragement in that. And in both Exodus 12, 1 Corinthians 5, the focus is on the lamb. It's not on the participants. The focus is on the lamb. Let our focus ever be on the Lamb who has saved us from judgment to come. And as the Israelites in Exodus 12 had to participate, so the Christians in the New Testament had to participate how? By faith. By faith we participate at this table. It's not by fleshly manner. It's not by blood. It's not by our, our, our lineage. It's not by who we are. But it is by faith we participate and we receive the blessing of God. And here afresh, the Lord strengthens our faith. Oh, may we see the Lamb at the table today. Finally, we keep this feast in sincerity and truth. Verse 8, the latter part. How do we keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth? Sincerity is a wonderful commodity. It has a reference to purity. It's something that's clean. It's something that is transparent. And we need sincerity in all of our hearts. One ounce of sincerity is worth the whole world. In sincere love to Christ, we come to this table. He's our lamb. Note the usage of all the pronouns. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. It's all personalized. 
The pronouns tell us much about how we know Christ. How are those pronouns used in the Bible? Well, I'll be giving an example. Galatians 2 and 20. Paul said that great verse, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Eight times the personal pronouns are used in that one little verse. Personally, can you say today, my Jesus, I love you. I know thou art mine. Can you say it? Not only sincere love to Christ, but sincere love to Christ's church. You know, we are, when we come to the Lord's table, we say we are communicating. We're, we're communicant members. So we're at the communion table. But we are communing not only with God, but we are in communication with our brethren and sisters. Around your meal table at dinner time, a very uncomfortable meal table, wouldn't it? If nobody talked to each other and you weren't in fellowship with each other uh, and nobody spoke a word, that would be a very difficult uh, Sunday lunch you're going to have. But here at this table, we're in fellowship one with the other. If you're a brother in Christ, if you're a sister in Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister. The table is open for you. The Lord bids you welcome. We're to keep this feast also with the unleavened bread of truth. Can I summarize it as follows? What does truth mean? It brings us to doctrine. The church is built upon the truth. Christ is the truth. And the church is built upon a apostolic truth and doctrine, doctrinal teaching. It is also built by means of discipline. You know, discipline is always difficult. It's always difficult to go to someone and admonish them. It's always difficult to go to someone and say, you can't do that anymore because, because of what? But where the church does not exercise discipline, brethren and sisters, it ceases to have the right to be called the true church of Christ. But also by means of devotion. Truth is not just something that is objective. Truth is subjective. It has to touch my heart. It has to touch my soul. It has to touch my life. Charles Hodge he, he took the wider view of keeping this feast rather than just as I have done, although I haven't done it in an exclusive way of narrowing it to the Lord's table. But he said, to keep the feast means let your whole lives be a sacred festival consecrated to God. As a feast lasting seven days was connected with the slaying of the Paschal Lamb, so a life of consecration to God should be connected with the death of the Passover. God calls us to holy, consecrated living. How do we keep the feast? In truth. We give thanks today for Christ our Passover, whose atoning sacrifice is of eternal value and worth. We give thanks today that here at this feast, and, and what a simple feast it is, just a little bit of bread, just a little drink, representing the wine and yet it nourishes our souls and as we come to this table continually God ministers his grace to us
Everything we have today, we owe to the Lamb. Everything we owe to the Lamb. And here once again, we're with the Lord's people. We're here remembering the Lamb for sinners slain. And we're here to give thanks for the Lamb of God. And here again, may we confirm our covenant with him. And our soul engagement with him for time and for eternity. Let's unite.